couple weeks ago, I heard this show on the radio where they were trying to explain why most people in most elections prefer Republicans these days. And um, there was a writer named Thomas Frank on the show going around with this book that he just published about uh, politics in Kansas. He was interested in why Kansans would keep voting for Republicans at every level, even though Republican economic policies and social policies weren't doing much to help them. And he says, actually made their lives tougher in a lot of ways, hurt farmers, hurt the Kansas economy. The poorest county in the country went for President Bush with an 80% majority in the last election. Frank's argument, you may have heard him talk about this on that book tour, is that Republicans were getting people to vote against their own economic self-interest by appealing to their values on cultural issues, on abortion, on God. Though as Frank and the other guests on this radio show, On Point, said, uh, the other guest was Atlantic Monthly Senior Editor Jack Beatty, the Democrats haven't been very good for most Kansans' economic interests either. You know, it's hard to th- say that the, pe- that the people voting for the Republican Party are all that are all that wrong. I mean, you know, neither party represents their interests, so they vote for the party that better represents their values, and that is the GOP, exactly. you know, yeah. and it delivers. I mean, you, you know, the gag rule on abortion internationally, stem cell research, abstinence-only programs in the schools, an effort to appoint uh, anti-choice judges. It delivers or tries to deliver on the values agenda, whereas the Democrats, I mean, look at Clinton. He gave the Midwest uh, NAFTA, the China health deal. They didn't get health care. So it's hard to turn around to the people who've lost their livelihoods and say, you know, vote for us. We're the party that'll, well, what will we do? Well, we'll we'll expose you to international competition, whereas the Republicans, they're going to do the same thing, (laughs) but at least they're going to, you know, make noises on the culture war. Soon they got to callers. The first was this Republican voter who said that, of course, he wasn't just voting his pocketbook. That would be crude. Your, your, your commentator's points about their voting against their economic best interest, well, there's more, to, there's more to, of concern to me than, you know, who's going to give me a tax break or who's going to build a factory in my town. I've got a lot, of, a lot of other interests that are important to me. This caller said that he disagreed with the Republicans on a bunch of things, but he said that, One nice thing about the Republican Party is that it welcomes people who disagree with them on this particular issue or that particular issue. Whereas he said, Democrats, if you're pro-life, it doesn't feel like there's any place for you in the party. The next caller said the same thing, that there was no room in the Democratic Party for a diversity of views. If you even contemplate, if you even advocate even uh, restrictions on abortion, which even the majority of people of the United States would favor, you, there's no room for you in the Democratic Party. You won't be allowed to speak, speak at a convention that, the, to advocate the idea that the state should decide when and under what circumstances abortion should be allowed. Of course, famously, in 1992, Pennsylvania's Democratic governor, Robert Casey, wasn't allowed to speak at his own party's convention because he was pro-life. Republicans control the House, they control the Senate, they control the White House. They have 28 of 50 governorships. They control the House and the Senate in 21 state houses. Seven out of nine Supreme Court justices are Republican appointees. And they dominate the majority of federal appellate courts as well. They are on the march. Republicans are positioning themselves as America's majority party. And what that means is, though Democrats may find this surprising, given the fact that blacks and Jews and Hispanics still vote mostly for Democrats, Lots of people find the Republican Party to be more inclusive, more welcoming, more accepting of divergent views. This is what Newt Gingrich was talking about just last week when he declared that, yes, there is a party of narrow-minded bigotry in this country. It's called the Democrats. 
He meant that the Democrats are the ones who demand that you fall into lockstep on abortion and affirmative action and all sorts of other political correctness besides. Today on our radio show, Republicans on the March. Their party is great at getting elected, and they do it very smartly by papering over the differences come election time. On today's program, though, we'll leave aside the official talking points that Republicans are saying everywhere till November and ask Republicans to speak instead about what they actually believe and what they want for the party and for the country. And it's way more complicated than you might think. Not just Christians on the one side of the party fighting with moderates on the other. WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our radio show, Republicans, the party of inclusion. Act one of our program, Pink Elephant. In that act, a Republican on what might seem like an ill-fated mission to win the hearts and minds of his fellow Republicans at their convention. Act two, write and writer. A visit to one of the many states where the Republican Party's been picking up strength to see how and why we spend some time with the Alabama Republican Party. Act 3, Indecent Proposal. In that act, free market Republicans and this story about a rich guy who knows that every person has his price. And so he goes to his Republican co-workers with an offer of money, lots and lots of money, if they will dare to spend just one evening with him doing an act that most Republicans would find utterly repulsive, namely watching the Michael Moore film. Act 4, It's My Party. One of the most civil conversations that you will ever hear between one side of the party that feels like it should be included and the other that feels that maybe it should not. Stay with us. Act one, Pink Elephant. Patrick Al came to the Republican convention this year on a mission that makes you wonder if he's in denial about the state of today's Republican Party or if he knows a lot more about it than you do. I saw it as a great opportunity to sort of bring the the inclusive log cabin message to the delegates that I happened to meet. The log cabin message is the message of gay Republicans. Log cabin, you may already know, is the name of the Gay Republicans' official national organization. And their inclusive message definitely had an uphill battle at this year's convention. Not only did the party adopt a platform calling for a constitutional amendment to outlaw gay marriage, and declaring that homosexuality is not compatible with military service. Gay Republicans couldn't even talk a single delegate into presenting their side of things for discussion at the platform committee. They were totally shut out. Nationally, just 11% of Republican voters support same-sex marriage. Hence Patrick's plan. I get to go to all the breakfasts and all of the events. I get onto the convention floor. And so and so, what does that mean? What do you, what do you think you're going to be doing? Well, um, really just showing them that uh, there are gay Republicans out there, that uh, there needs to be sort of a big tent approach in order to win over the the broader public, you know, the suburban voters that are much more moderate. In his experience talking to Republicans, which is considerable, this is the most effective sell, that tolerance wins elections. 1.1 million gays and lesbians voted for President Bush in the year 2000, just a fourth of the gay vote overall, but enough to make a difference for the president. In Florida, that works out to nearly 50,000 votes, the log cabinet Republicans say. Patrick is in his 30s, an attorney in Orlando. Until a few years ago, he was married. He has a little boy from that marriage. Then he came out. He's always been a Republican and agrees with the president on pretty much everything, he says, except gay issues. The treatment that he gets in his own party is very quite a bit. For instance, 
County Republican leaders specifically reached out and invited Patrick to run for the state assembly two years ago in a district in Orlando that's mostly Democrats and gay-friendly. The state party gave him the maximum, $50,000, and hooked him up with another $50,000 in third-party ads. But then, the Republican who used to hold that seat actually endorsed Patrick's Democratic opponent in the race, rather than support a gay candidate. Patrick's gotten some nasty emails saying, why don't you leave the party, you're not wanted. But the nastiness, he says, happens less often than you'd think. One-on-one, he finds that most Republicans are glad to sit down and talk to him. You know, people that just kind of know you on the fringe, but then you end up sitting at a voter registration booth with them for, for four hours on a Saturday. And suddenly that person leaves uh, really knowing everything about me. And Patrick, what do you find in the, uh, that kind of situation that, that tends to change people's mind? I think that it's just the realization that I'm not that different from, from themselves and so basically you talk about your kid, you talk about going to church. Right, kind of right. During this extraordinary and even challenging moment, we have discovered who our friends are. And with us today, our friend and yours, Mayor Michael Bloomberg. In New York, the first Republican convention event that Patrick attended was run by his own organization, the Log Cabin Republicans. In the wake of their defeats at the platform committee, they staged what they called the Big Tent event with as many high-profile mainstream politicians as they could sign up. The very liberal-minded Republican mayor of New York, Michael Bloomberg, kicked things off to a room with a few hundred people in it, which, for gay Republicans, is a huge turnout. Um, As the host of this reception, I want to tell you that a few years ago, I used this event as an occasion to come out. Uh, As a Republican, you should know. The mayor talked about inclusiveness being the future of the party and about how constitutional amendments shouldn't be used to divide people. New York Governor Pataki, who's such a rising star in the party that he was the one who introduced President Bush at the convention later in the week, who is a possible 2008 presidential contender himself, but enough solidarity with the gay Republicans to show up at this event, but not enough solidarity to actually mention in his remarks inclusiveness, the place of gays in the party, the place of moderates in the party, gay marriage, homosexuals, or really any of the log cabin issues at all. It was the sort of speech you could have given to any group of Republicans. We are going to have a great week here in New York, and we are going to have a celebration of the greatest city in the world. And at the end of that week, I hope you leave with a little more... Wait, I didn't mean it that way. The surprise stars of the day were Arlen Specter and William Weld. Senator Specter, a Republican from Pennsylvania, said that he didn't know and he didn't care if supporting gay rights would help Republicans win elections. These are fundamental rights, he said. Then came William Weld, former governor of Massachusetts, another possible presidential candidate for 2008. If you've heard President Bush rail against activist judges legalizing marriage, Governor Weld would remind you that some of those judges are Republican appointees, including the head of the Massachusetts Supreme Court, who he appointed, and who legalized gay marriage in that state. Well talked about his gay and lesbian friends, about gay and lesbian members of his own administration in Massachusetts. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was my pleasure to return to Massachusetts in June of this year to marry my former chief of staff, Kevin Smith, and a former cabinet member, Mitchell Adams. And from there, the Republican Weld laid out a position on gay marriage that is far more liberal than the supposedly super liberal John Kerry's position. Kerry opposes gay marriage. Let me just say one word about the Uh, federal constitutional amendment on gay marriage. You know, I've been invited to 
oppose this amendment on states' rights grounds, on the ground that this should be left to the states, and I've uh, kind of jumped over that issue. I prefer to oppose this amendment on substantive grounds, on the merits. It's, it's the conservative point of view. It's making the same demands on gays and lesbians that are made on everyone else when they want to commit to each other. Uh, to me, it's kind of obvious. And, you know, the, the fact that uh, some people have gay and lesbian preferences is not something that's going to be changed based on what somebody in the legislature says. And I don't know whether the percentage of the population is 10% or 5% or 15% or 1%. It doesn't matter. You're not going to repeal biology in the United States Senate or the House, no matter what you do. Patrick was one of the people clapping enthusiastically when Weld said that, and when Arlen Specter talked about gay rights being a matter of principle. I love that. It was just nice to be able to hear it articulated by someone that has a national presence. Yeah, when he said that, again, I was just like, wow, I don't know if I've ever, ever heard anybody say that, <laughs> Democrat or Republican. I don't think I have either, and it's wonderful to hear. I've never heard that. You've never heard that? No. <laughs> it's totally amazing. I mean, that's not even the message that we send. We send the message uh, that, hey, this is the thing that's going to increase our party numbers, and it's the thing that's going to make our, our party the majority party. Um, we, we try to appeal to the brain as opposed to the heart, but I don't know. Maybe we need to start appealing to both. Hey, how are you? Hello. At the convention one night at Madison Square Garden, I hovered around Patrick as he walked up to seven different groups of Republicans wearing his log cabin inclusion pin, a lady from Texas in a red cowboy hat and red boots, and a handsome couple from Virginia, both pretty much iced Patrick when the subject of gay marriage came up, which Patrick took as opposition to gay marriage. A young African-American guy was for gay marriage, as were two rich people from Miami. One of them turned out to be gay, and the other, his friend, turned out to be a big Republican donor on the chairman's advisory board. Three other people that Patrick approached fell into the kind of um, gray area, against gay marriage, but in ways that gave him some kind of sliver of hope. There was this family from Utah who seemed open to the idea of civil unions, and there was this Korean war vet. I have no problem with people who are gay or uh, lesbians or whatever, Right. Uh, but I don't think they should get married. I think they should live together, have a lot of the protections of marriage, but I think that a marriage should be between a man and a woman, so I may not be with you altogether. Civil unions were fine with them, though. Patrick says that ever since Republicans started talking about outlawing gay marriage at the federal level, tons of Republicans have been supporting civil unions to a degree that he'd never imagined five years ago. He was very hopeful about the vet. He's one of those people that, that if he makes those sort of inclusive-minded statements that he did... Uh, he's he's about 90% there, you know. He's there on civil unions. He's there on uh, not being bigoted towards gays and lesbians. So um, it's encouraging. I mean, he looked to be in his 60s. And, I mean, if we, if we have uh, 60-year-old white male veterans that are moving in towards our direction, that's a very good sign. Yeah. Hi, I'm Patrick Howell. Cindy White, North from, Carolina. From Orlando, Florida. Oh, Greenville, North Carolina. Oh, okay. Nice to meet you. Cindy White tells Patrick that Republicans in North Carolina are mostly against gay marriage. It's a Bible Belt, she says. 
What would it take to, you, do you think, to move you personally on the Federal Marriage Amendment? Um, my brother-in-law lives in Key West and is gay. Oh, okay. Doesn't mean I approve of marriage, but he's gay and I approve of him. Right. He doesn't marry anyone, doesn't want to that I know of, right. but does have a partner, you know. Um, but it's just something I'm not ready to say exactly where I feel on it. Might still be working on it. Yeah, yourself. might still be working on it. Right. At the end of talking to all these Republicans, the score was two against Patrick and gay rights, two for Patrick and gay rights, and three, like this last woman, it seemed like they might come around someday. And Patrick felt pretty good. His sense in general is that people are more flexible than you know. I don't think that self-described um, social conservatives are as monolithic as a lot of people think. I think you do have social conservatives that keep an open mind and may be very conservative in their religious views and, and whatnot, but at the same time have gay friends and understand that they need to move a little bit on some of those issues. I think that's true more than it's not true. If you think about it, how many situations are there where arch-conservative Christians and homosexuals sit down together and really hash things out? That's the point, Patrick says. We're inside the fortress. We're in these people's lives. We're talking to them. If anybody's going to get to these very conservative people on gay issues, it's going to be gay Republicans, not the protesters and activists who are outside the fortress. write in writer. To understand the rise of the Republican Party over the last 20 years, one place you can look is Alabama, where they've made huge strides. If there is a religious and a non-religious wing of the party, this is definitely the religious wing. Of the 48 delegates Alabama sent to the Republican convention in New York, not one was pro-choice. Nationally, one out of three Republican voters is pro-choice. 70% of the state identifies itself as born-again Christian versus 40% nationally. Alex Bloomberg visited with the Alabama Republican Party. Marty Connors is the state chairman of the Republican Party in Alabama. He says that for Alabama, he's a moderate. He supports the war in Iraq 100%, as opposed to any and all taxes. He wants Roe versus Wade to be overturned, and he would welcome prayer back into the public schools. But this is a state residents proudly call the buckle of the Bible Belt. So Marty Connors sometimes finds himself the most liberal person in the room. A few years back, I was at a convention doing some whip work, and, and one of the delegates, uh, uh, who will go unnamed... Uh, <laughs> felt that uh, that former President Bush, who was then going to be vice president, just wasn't conservative enough, you know, to be on the ticket. So you know, he was going to support Gene Kirkpatrick for vice president as opposed to George Bush, which, you know, Gene is great, but there's, you know, there's a time and place for everything. So And, and that would have meant literally what? Well, Alabama being the first state in the union that it has to, um, you know, the first state in the roll call, it, it would have looked a little awkward, you know, not having a unanimous, you know, so we decided to put him in a room one-on-one with Jesse Helms for a little while uh, just to kind of, you know, sort of, sort, of, sort of talk some sense, you know, that kind of thing. And so Jesse spent about 30 minutes with him, and the young man comes out of the room. And I said, well, is everything fine? And he said, oh, yeah, everything's, everything's really fine. And I said, well, good. We'll, we'll have your support. And he said, no, I'm still going to vote against you. And I, and I said, well, why? And he said, well, Jesse Helms just doesn't completely understand the conservative movement. So that's that's how it went. There are two informal wings in the Alabama Republican Party. 
This is Jim Ziegler, founder of a group called the League of Christian Voters, which represents the right wing of Alabama's right wing. There is a establishment, party official, chamber of commerce, business council, internationalist uh, wing. And then there's the conservative Christian, adamantly pro-life, pro-family wing. Right now, the right wing, of which I am a part, is not in control of the party machinery. And uh, I have appointed myself as uh, the coordinator of the movement to... uh, take back the Republican Party for Republican principles. Of course, in Alabama, both wings of the party are pro-life and begin their meetings with a prayer, so it can be a little hard to tell the two sides apart. The difference is mainly one of priorities. Business Republicans pray a lot, but Jim Ziegler's wing wants God to be at the very center of everything the government does. In other words, it's the wing of Judge Roy Moore. Remember him? He was the Alabama chief justice who installed a 5,000-pound monument of the Ten Commandments in the state courthouse, and then was told to remove it by his own Republican-dominated bench. He later lost his job over it. Lots of Republicans didn't support Moore or found him a little embarrassing, but the fact that the party didn't go to bat for him galvanized Jim Ziegler. He started the League of Christian Voters to try and get more Republicans like Judge Moore elected. The Republican Party does not need to have a broad tent. We need to focus on the issues of of Republican principles. Here's how the Christian wing is doing so far. Out of three races for state judge this summer in the Republican primary, they won one. And they make up about a third of the delegates at the Republican National Convention, 17 out of 48. One of those 17 was Ziegler himself, who became a delegate in a very symbolic race. He beat a man named Perry Hooper Sr., who was one of the founders of the modern GOP in Alabama the first Republican ever elected to the state Supreme Court and one of the most respected centrists in the entire party. After his loss, Hooper called Ziegler an embarrassment to Christianity. At this time, I'm Bradley Byrne, state senator. who will lead us in the Pledge of Allegiance. Thank you. Please cover your hearts. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. On a Thursday night in the break room of Warrior Tractor, a farm equipment retailer in Monroeville, Alabama, I get a chance to see the moderate wing of the Republican Party. This is the largest meeting ever of the Monroe County chapter of the Republican Party. People are turning Republican in Alabama faster than the party infrastructure can keep up with them. For over a century, the state, like all its southern neighbors, had voted exclusively Democratic. You could fit all the Republicans in the state into one room, I'm told over and over again. As late as 1992, Democrats controlled both of Alabama's seats in the U.S. Senate and five of the seven in the House of Representatives. Today, just a decade later, it's reversed. Five of the seven representatives and both senators are Republican, not to mention the governor and most of the state's Supreme Court. There's about 100 people here nibbling at potluck offerings from Tupperware containers and casserole dishes. Mostly they're small business people, and mostly they want the standard Republican wish list. Smaller government, lower taxes stronger military. But at some level, the issues are only part of the Republican draw. Kay Ivey, the state's first Republican treasurer and featured speaker, puts it this way. You see, we in this room come from a same set of values. 
We cherish family and patriotism and hard work and home ownership and family and friends and goodness knows we like to cook and eat. <laughs> we all have done great. But you know, we, we care about people. And the president has the values that we have in this room tonight. That's a clear distinction from his opponent. Later, a woman at the meeting tells me she can imagine George Bush walking right into this room, filled with these people, and fitting right in. But try as she might, she can't imagine John Kerry here. And actually, neither can I. Although Monroe County is almost 40% black, the crowd here is all white. And everyone admits the party doesn't do too well with black people in Alabama. 19 out of every 20 black votes goes to a Democrat. And the state chairman was actually booed during a speech at Tuskegee University when he mentioned Condoleezza Rice. Mainly, this is historical. Lots of white voters in the South switched to the Republicans because of Democratic Party support for civil rights in the 60s. Today, though, when a person with openly racist views decides to run on the Republican ticket, one Republican operative told me, the party funnels back-channel money to the Democratic opponents to make sure he doesn't get elected. And when visiting reporters come to town, the party leadership introduces them to Sherelle Roberts, one of the black pioneers in the Alabama Republican Party. Sherelle's parents lived through the civil rights struggles in Alabama, and he lives in Montgomery, which is where, you'll remember, Martin Luther King's church was located, Freedom Riders were beaten at the bus station, and Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat. I can understand the generation that was there, that lived it. I can understand the blacks that had the hose turned on them, the dogs put on them, absolutely. I I don't expect those folks to get over it. (laughs) And, well, they shouldn't. And I understand exactly the hesitancy of a lot of blacks to say, hey, why do I want to join up with this group when you have the Willie Horton thing, you know, Jesse Helms, uh, what Trent Lott said about Strom Thurmond. Those type of things, uh, when I hear them, you know, specifically those, when, when I hear them, I'm like, Look, that's not representative of our party. Sherelle's car has a Bush Cheney bumper sticker. Driving around the neighborhood, he's been called a sellout and an Uncle Tom. He gets in political arguments with his Democrat mom all the time. Sherelle realized he was a Republican while watching the 1984 Democratic convention with his family when he heard Walter Mondale promise to raise taxes. Even as a kid, in a house of Mondale supporters, he hated that idea. Proof that some people are just born Republican. Sherrill says that old guard segregationists still occasionally show up in the party. But whenever I run into, you you know, people like that, you know, I I just tell them, look, this country is changing. There's no way that you're going to be able to win an election anywhere with just a white vote. You aren't going to do it. (laughs) You aren't going to do it. And, And if that's your vision of our party... We will be the minority party for the rest of this century. Sherelle's pro-life, once smaller government, is for the war in Iraq. But most of our conversation was spent on the subject of inequality, racial and economic inequality, which isn't one of your usual Republican talking points. If there's a problem in the black community, it affects the white community as well. There's a problem in the white community. It affects the the black community. And people got to realize we're all in this thing together. Uh, Let's not have one community very prosperous, 
but over here have another segment of the community that's not doing well. I don't have a responsibility to educate a child here in Montgomery. I live 150 miles away. My wife and I have two children. I don't have children with anybody else. I'm responsible for educating them. You have to hand it to a political party that can claim both of these guys as loyal members. Stephen King is a self-described right-wing Christian and the chairman of the Blunt County Republican Party. On most issues, it's not that he and Sherelle believe different things. It's just that Stephen King believes them more. He's more of a free marketeer, thinks government should almost not exist, and on religious issues, he's less of a compromiser. I, I would rather be right on an issue and lose than be wrong and win. I mean, we, we misuse the word Big Ten, I think. Uh, I'm sure there are people that in the Republican Party are, 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 are homosexuals. You've got the log cabin Republicans. You know, they want to be and Republicans, fine. You know, my, my viewpoint is we're still going to have a, a position in our plank that, that we're, we're not going to be for homosexual marriage. People in the Christian wing, like Stephen King, because they're motivated by their idealism and care less about political majorities, can find themselves in a paradoxical position. They're the party's most conservative members, but sometimes they sound like its most liberal critics. Stephen King, for example, doesn't trust the Patriot Act. He's opposed to tort reform. And don't even get him started about that secret meeting Dick Cheney held a while back with energy industry representatives. The vice president has refused to release even a list of the people who attended. And Stephen King says it's the same type of thing that Republicans got mad at President Clinton about when he appointed his wife Hillary to head a panel on health care. You know, who are these people? What, you know, it, it's my tax money. Right. You know, t- too many people... Uh, on my side of the aisle or my side of the position and, and, and others I I don't think are intellectually honest. You know, um, I mean, you, you can't say that that when the Democrats are there and they get some health care panel together, that all, everything ought to be all open and, and, and Mr. Sandy comes along and, well, that's a different thing. Well, no, it's not different. Like many idealistic people, Stephen King has a complicated relationship to politics. He's drawn to it, but he also feels let down by it. He still remembers as a kid begging his parents to stay up and watch the 72 convention on TV to see Nixon get nominated. All those people with all those deeply held convictions coming together to argue and persuade. It seemed romantic, like the first constitutional convention when the country was being founded. I guess I thought in some ways that's, that's what was going on in the convention. And I mean, I realize now that those things don't happen or don't happen, I guess, the way that I, I thought about it then. Uh-huh. Was that a disappointment to find out that they don't happen that way? Yeah. Uh, I was a delegate four years ago in Philadelphia, and, and I was, uh, I guess, naive, and, and I learned that my participation was very, very limited, you know, almost to the point of simply being a warm body in a chair. I mean, I, like, I, I've been a Republican my whole life. I'm, you know, you, you want to have a say-so, you know. Here, here's, this is what I believe, and this is why I believe it. And they, they don't, I don't want to say they don't want to hear it, but it's, that's just not what you're there for. This, it sometimes seems, is what you are here for. To drink free booze and dance awkwardly to cover bands. It's the week of the GOP convention in New York. A couple of the delegates at this party have a line on some Skinner tickets for later. It's a private concert for the GOP conventioneers. And even though this is the largest assembly of Republicans for the next four years, 
And even though there's every kind of Republican present here, including a drunk one at the bar who confided in me late in the evening that he's voting for Kerry, even here, Stephen King can't get what he wants. The, the thing I want is for there to be debate, to be open discussion. I want someone to, to, to allow me to try to convince them otherwise, and I'm open to be convinced otherwise, you know. Let's engage in the debate. Otherwise, we're just this mishmash gush of, of you know, feel good, you know, which doesn't mean anything. That's Ray by Alex Bloomberg. Coming up, Stephen King gets his wish, a real debate, the kind that rarely happens in American politics. We have him sit down with Patrick Howell, the log cabin Republican from the first act of our show. Mano a mano, who will convince whom? That's in the second half of our show from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. American Life, Myra Glass. Today in our program, stories about America's majority party, and yes, they are just barely the majority, but it's the Republicans whose numbers are rising. In the second half of our show, we have two stories of people in this charged political environment this fall trying to come to a meeting of the minds. We'll pick up with Alabama's Stephen King again in a little bit. Where we turn now is to a visit to a different wing of the party, people who are Republicans, but not for religious reasons, but for economic ones. 70% of Republicans approve of the way that President Bush is handling the economy. That's versus just 22% of Democrats who approve. We have arrived at Act 3 of our show, Act 3, Indecent Proposal. Shane DeBow tells the story of Republicans who work in a place where everyone is thinking about the economy and its ups and downs all the time. Every election season, a company-wide email goes out at my work. The email reminds everyone that our office is supposed to be a politics-free zone, The subtext is all about keeping things civil and productive. At my friend Mike's work, that's not how they do it. Come here! I wanted to talk to you a second! Come here! This is the cattle pit of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. It's the morning after Arnold Schwarzenegger and Rudy Giuliani have given speeches at the Republican National Convention in New York. Come out here for a second if you get a second. One second. You're not that busy. Come out here. He said economic girly man. That's the big refrain today is that, you know, what? They call me liberal boy and, you know, they're now they're like, they get the refrain from Schwarzenegger, the economic girly man. I've heard it all morning. I mean, between Giuliani's speech bashing Kerry and the economic girly man, it's been a bad two days to be down here, put it that way. What Mike means is that it's been a bad two days to be one of the only outspoken Democrats in a testosterone-charged pit full of some of the most right-leaning and red-meat-eating traders on the floor. 
Every day, all day, he gets heckled. During the election season, it gets worse. With that in mind, Mike's come up with this idea. This way to win a few converts, or at least score a few political points. His plan? Take some of these guys to see the Michael Moore movie Fahrenheit 9-11. And to get them to go? He's offering cash. I'm paying 400 a crack to go. It's 400 bucks. I got some takers. You can wager it in Vegas. It's 400 bucks, and I'll even throw in a drink afterwards. We're going to see Fahrenheit 9-11. Are you going to come with us? What? After a month of trying and failing to make this movie thing happen, he's finally found some takers, Bill and Tom. Well, we have a long relationship. We have a 10-year relationship, all of us on the floor. And it tends to be me against... <laughs> tends to be me against the pit. And Tom tends to be the leader on the other side. Um, and he has quite a lot of help. And he's not even close to being on his soapbox yet. This is Bill. Two days ago, we had a nice little chat. And three rows down, we were sitting in those stadium seats. We're at the top. Everybody's turning around and looking up because Mike is screaming about, these people are lying. Did you read this in the paper? This is, they're absolutely lying. These Republicans. The political arguments these guys get into will probably sound familiar. There's the one about terrorism. Under your man's administration for eight years, we ignored all the signs. The one about the economy. You think Clinton can take credit for the, the, the tech boom? Are you out of your Are you coming no, out? No, Seriously. No, 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 not... The other one about the economy. The junior, Bush Jr. drove it into the ditch. I mean, come on. It, the father drove the economy into the ditch, and then Bush Jr. drove it into the ditch. Oh, man. You are. <laughs> and then there's whatever you call this. I consider myself a political moderate. Really. Oh, my God. That's the problem. You think you're a moderate. <laughs> so I'm a moderate. What? You're a moderate? I'm a moderate. I'm right in the center. I'm a Clintonian. I love Bill Clinton. He tacked the country right to the middle. Right? He was, what? He tacked the country. He tacked every right. chick in his office. No, 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 no. He tacked. Tom's 49, tall and good looking a former college basketball player. In Tom's world, the flat tax is the fairest tax, Fox is the fairest network, and nationalized health care will lead to socialism. Growing up, Tom says, his family didn't have a lot of money. You know, you talked about the political girly men. Hey, you know what? I put myself through college. Nobody gave me a dime. You didn't do that. He's looking straight at Mike here. I've been working since I was in fifth grade, and no one's ever given me anything. I don't feel sorry for people that sit around and wait for... Wait for entitlements. You shouldn't call it entitlement. It's welfare. It's not entitlement. You're not entitled to squat. As for Bill, he's also an independent broker who had to work growing up. And he also doesn't think much of taxes or welfare. Which brings us back to Mike and his hopes for Michael Moore's latest movie. Fahrenheit 9-11 came out. All of the people, the conservatives, the people that I talked to in the pit, no one had seen the movie. No one would, would, had seen the movie. They would critique the hell out of the movie, but they wouldn't uh, go see it. All right? So I started... Is that, is that true? No one, no one wanted to see the movie? Well, here's the thing. I mean, the, reason, the reason for that is because you knew that, for example, I mean, Michael Moore's previous stuff, I mean, he, he, he takes, he mixes some facts with some, some non-facts, and, and it, this is your story. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right hold on. This is the kind of thing that I have to endure, okay? Wait, 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 wait. I'll tell you something else. Okay, okay, no, you've you, been talking the whole time now. This is what happens in the pit. People are quoting everything else they read about the movie, but they won't see it, okay? And that is the premise that I've always I've operated under. So 
the, the way this started is a guy that sits next is in my next office comes in one day is quoting the same stuff saying it's all oh, it's so terrible what Michael Moore's doing to the country with this movie and I say Fred have, have you seen the movie and he says no I haven't seen the movie I said okay what's it going to take you to get to go to the movie and he says I, my time my time is worth more than uh, you know going to see a movie I said well what's your time worth he says well I'm paid two hundred dollars an hour as a consultant and I said. Okay, movie's two hours. How about 400? There seems like there's a political debate going on in the country, and no one's listening to each other. So one side talks to their brethren, the other side talks to their brethren, and we're not having any cross-fertilization. There's no, there's no dialogue happening. And the, the real, the, like one of the most fundamental things in a democracy is to have a dialogue. Even before the main feature, it's clear Bill and Tom are ready to find liberal plots behind whatever they see. Example, when a preview for the new shark movie Open Water comes on and a young couple is shown treading water, Tom and Bill make jokes about Chappaquiddick. I asked Mike for a few predictions. Which one of these guys do you think is most vulnerable to uh, slipping over to the uh, liberal side? Which one of these two is sitting in front of me? I think Tom is pretty vulnerable on this one, and I think it's going to be one of those things that if he does, if this does make him break... Um, Mike, I want you closer to me so I can hear you bad mouth. <laughs> I'm not bad mouthing you. Yeah. I'm just, you asked me which one of you guys are going to come over to the other side after you see this thing. <laughs> I'll put it this way. G. Gordon Liddy's are too middle of the road for me. <laughs> see? I think he's... I think he's I think he's ready. I think he's primed for. I think he's primed for a conversion. I think he's primed for a conversion. That's a, you know you you get at your most extreme right before you decide to change. The movie starts. Right away, Mike's bid to win these guys over seems in trouble. Here's an early scene showing black members of Congress protesting the 2000 election results in a joint session. Al Gore is presiding as president of the Senate. Is the objection? Uh, in writing and signed by a member of the House and a senator. The objection is in writing, and I don't care that it is not, it is not signed by a member of the That's the beauty of liberals. They don't care about the rules. When Richard Clark, former White House terrorism czar, explains how President Bush was obsessed with invading Iraq even before September 11th, Bill whispers that Clark had an axe to grind because he got passed over for a promotion, and Tom says, right, so he's bitter. They're interviewing a bitter ex-employee. Even the movie's celebrity walk-ons get the treatment. Look, there's Ben Affleck. He's often in my dreams. I'll bet he is. You get the idea. Sarcastic comments from Tom, dismissive chit-chat from Bill. A lot of hopeful see, see what I means from Mike. And every now and then, a moment of silence, when it's hard to tell how exactly the movie's going over. By the end, though, Mike seems encouraged. As we leave the theater, he asks Tom about a few scenes, like the one where Bush, at a black tie fundraiser, first dubs the crowd a collection of haves and have-mores, and then says, some people call you the elite, I call you my base. You know, you're the kind of person that wasn't born in the elites of the country, right? And so when Bush gets up and he says, I'm here with, wait, wait, hold on, I'm saying, he he says, I'm here with the mores and the have-mores, does that appeal to you intrinsically? Like, 
Well, it doesn't appeal to me, but it was a joke and it was funny. Yeah, I mean, he's making a joke and it was a funny joke. And it wasn't like it wasn't like he was disparaging anyone. He just said, "Because that's who was there." I asked Tom and Bill if anything in the movie, anything at all, struck a chord. Tom mentions the part where Bush is said to have opposed better pay and benefits for soldiers. He says if that's true, it's disturbing. Bill agrees. Both men say they'll go home and do some research, see if Michael Moore's quote-unquote facts check out. Well, you know what? I mean, his, the problem with, with Moore is, you know, so many of his, his uh, you know, so much of his premise is riddled with uh, half-truths and lies. So I'd like to have, find out what really was the deal with that. I mean, I just can't believe that's true. They don't even believe one of the points in the movie that's actually backed up by the independent and bipartisan 9-11 commission, that there's no meaningful link between al-Qaeda and Iraq. I don't believe that for a minute. You know, I, I don't care who tells me. I, I don't believe that for a minute. Then Bill weighs in on the one part of the movie I thought might be persuasive, the part where the pro-military mother from Flint, Michigan, loses her son in Iraq. I thought he sort of uh, really belabored that. I mean, I thought he just really stayed on that. And then in, in particular when he was in, uh, and she was in Washington, and then she's breaking down crying. Well, I'm sitting there thinking, well... Geez, you know, here's this poor woman falling down crying and you're just standing there filming, you know, typical right. press deal. Right. It's at this point that Tom turns, reaches into his back pocket, and pulls out a wad of folded papers he's printed off the Internet. Oh, is that something about all the untruths in the movie, though? Not all of them, just a handful of them. Oh, you had it going in. You didn't yeah. show me that. Well, you know, what am I going to, uh, uh, you know, I... Oh, you well, had it all. Did you read book? all these before you came yeah. into the movie mm -hmm. today? Yeah. So you were prepared. Damn. What, what am I supposed to do? Come in here like a, like a, like a, like a sheep? Like, like a lamb? I don't have to be sheared by you? I wasn't saying that. By you and your left-wing liberal friends? No. Trying to corner me no. just like Michael Moore? No. Trying to ambush no. me? In the entire ten-year history of these arguments and these discussions, has anyone ever been persuaded? Absolutely not. No that's, one that's the problem. Right. And that's the thing I, I was thinking, because people say, why are you going to this, this thing today? And I said, well, i got to straighten some, some liberals out about a few things. I said, and, and, I, and I was saying it in a joking manner, because the fact of the matter is, no matter what you do, I think people are wired differently. I mean, I've tried to straighten out Mike several times, but he's wired different. No matter what I show him, to show him that, that, that I'm right, he's wrong, he, he can agree with me on all this stuff, and then he'll still say, but no, I, I, I'm still voting Democrat. Mike doesn't exactly see it that way. He's still surprisingly hopeful, even though he's worked on these guys for seven straight hours, including the movie, and to me it seems like they haven't budged. Tom will never really cede any, um, any ground in an argument, but I did see sort of a, 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 a door open, go ajar there, and a little doubt open, enter his mind when he saw that the, um, the military benefits had been cut for the, for the veterans, and I think that, that really bothered him. And it's really a war, it's a, it's a war of attrition with these guys. And by God, I'm going to work on them tomorrow morning in the pit with this thing. When I call Mike for an update, he says that for a few days after the movie, he got more grief than ever out on the trading floor. Tom brought in a copy of Zell Miller's Republican convention speech and took to reading it out loud whenever there was a lull. But then all the politics started to wear people out. The back and forth got old and the teasing died down. And then just when things were returning to normal, Mike says, two other Republican traders approached him on the floor. They'd gone to see Fahrenheit 9-11 on their own, they said. 
They each wanted their 400 bucks. Shane DeBow in Chicago. Back four, it's my party. So Stephen King, Christian Republican from Alabama, came to the Republican convention in New York wanting to debate the issues. And Patrick Howe, gay Republican from Florida, came to the convention wanting to debate the issues. So it only seemed right that somebody, somebody, would get those two crazy kids together. Hi, Steve King. Patrick Howell. Nice to meet you, Patrick. Nice to meet you, too. They hit it off right away. Patrick, it turns out, and two brothers and a sister went to school up in Alabama at Sanford University, the Baptist school, where, coincidentally, Stephen got his law degree. Patrick was Sigma Nu, so was Stephen's brother. Patrick's sister still lives a few miles from Birmingham. Stephen knew the town and the high school her kids are going to. I live just north of Birmingham, about 30 miles in Blunt County, Aniana. Okay. And, uh, and so I Do you know the Phillips family? Yeah. yeah. You know Derek? Yeah, Derek was a fraternity brother of mine. Are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> well, After a few I minutes of Southern comfortableness, they got down to business. Patrick said that while, of course, he and Stephen would agree that our country was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, our idea of those principles changes over time. Slavery was abolished. Women got the right to vote. And it's the same with rights for gays and lesbians, he said. And, you know, it's, it's difficult for us when social conservatives come at us from two angles. They come at us from the angle of saying, you're immoral, you sleep around, you can't settle down and, and have one relationship. And then on the other side, the same people are saying, we're not going to let you enter into relationships. <laughs> we don't want you to. And it, that's frustrating for us when you hear that coming from both sides of, of someone's mouth. And Because um, that's what we want. We want to be boring. <laughs> we want... <laughs> we, you know, that's kind of what we're fighting for is, uh, is, is to be boring and to just settle down with someone and spend the rest of our lives with them and what are your thoughts on, on maybe coming to some sort of middle ground that would allow for civil unions and protections like that with respect to coming to a, to a uh, some kind of common ground or middle ground um, we, we probably can on some level, and there's going to be other levels we, we won't be able to. Um, uh, I'm never going to agree that, uh, that, that homosexuality or that lifestyle um, is a moral lifestyle. Uh, given reading God's Word, you know, I, I'm never going to come to that position. One, one thing I sense from, from um, uh, the homosexual lobby, I, I'll call it that, uh, is that I, I get a sense it's not just that whether you want you know to be able to have civil unions or marriage or whatever. It's that you want me or people that believe like me, uh, not just to accept that your homosexuality, but that homosexuality is okay. No, I, I don't. I don't think that that is our our goal at all. And I mean, I know personally that's not my goal um when you talk about you talk you can talk about two different things one is acceptance and one is tolerance that's really what we're looking for and you know asking for tolerance isn't really asking for a lot it's just asking that you know you be able to say you know i i don't act i don't endorse this i don't agree with it but i i tolerate it um certainly Acceptance would be great, 
Um, but tolerance is really all we're looking for. Okay. I, and I, I certainly, um, I, I think I'm tolerant. Uh, I, I'm not going to agree with your lifestyle. Um, and we're in some sense in a battle, it seems to be. You know, that's probably what it's going to be for, for a while. And, and, you know, one of us is going to prevail and one of us is not. Uh, and in the meantime, I don't want bad things to happen to you. I don't want, um, you know, people to be mean or physically harm you or anything like that. Um, I don't want the government uh, harassing you. I mean, uh, I hope this is not harassing. We disagree. but I don't I think it's harassing at all. We'd have understanding of, I know where you stand and where you feel, and you know mine. They talked about gay marriage. Patrick ticked off a list of problems that gay couples face right now because they can't marry. Visitation in hospitals when a partner's sick. Inheriting property when a partner dies. Even if there's a will, family members can contest it in court, he says. Stephen said he never heard about that one. Stephen said his main problem with letting gays marry, or have civil unions in some states, is that it's hard to imagine that it would just be confined to a few states. Surely, he said, some liberal judge would make all the states recognize the marriages. And from his point of view, it's just the next thing in a slippery slope. Christians lost the right to pray in schools. There's Roe versus Wade, then no-fault divorce. This is just one more thing that he's teaching his kids is wrong, that society says is okay. The fact that Patrick's religious, goes to church, his six-year-old son goes to a religious school, all means something to Stephen. I, I want him to be a good father. I, I want him to be a good father. You know, our, our quote, society as a whole, I think probably in a lot of ways, would be better off if people were as interested in their children, probably as Patrick is, and is it a son, is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's fine that you're involved in, in, in the church there and things, whatever. I, I mean, I, I do wonder what the church and 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 how the church gets around the, the, the clear teaching in Scripture uh, against homosexuality. Well, here's, here's what I have trouble with. Um, you would never... Uh, I, I, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but if someone came to your church and was divorced, uh, you would never tell that person you are committing adultery. That's what Jesus said in the Bible. He said that if you divorce and remarry, you're committing adultery with that, uh, with that person. Your church, I bet, doesn't tell people that or divorce that. From the pulpit, look over at the you know divorced people that are sitting there that have remarried and say, every time you sleep with your new husband, you're committing adultery. And so what, you, what you've done and what you're able to do probably and what your church does is you cherry pick things from the Bible that are going to be something that you hold out as a principle. And the other stuff you conveniently leave in there and close it and, and put it out of your mind. And for whatever reason, homosexuality is one of those things that has been cherry-picked out and has been, for whatever reason, given this <laughs> different status. Um, I think you make an excellent point. Uh, and, and I think the way you, you put it about the cherry-picking um, is um, uh, correct. But even with the hypocrisy, okay, that that I admit is there, okay, uh, you know, that that doesn't get around uh, with what Scripture says. Well, I think what I, we you know, we talked about tolerance, and I think that tolerance can go both ways because I can tolerate what I see as the hypocrisy in a lot of churches. If you can tolerate that that there are people that have a different view 
of, of what God's message is or what uh, the scripture means or what the application is to our individual lives. Uh, understand that we've got to tolerate those views and try to focus on things that we do agree on. Because there's a lot. Well, I agree. I, I think there is a lot. And, and uh, you know, but no one understand this and, and getting kind of back just within the Republican Party. Um, you know, we're, we're going to continue to have this, um, uh, this struggle, this agreement, uh, like on the platform, you know. You know. If, those, if those platform provisions change, would you leave the party? Um, well, I, I, no, I don't think I'd be okay, and that's when I'll come to the point of, will I continue to be a Republican? What am I going to do? And, and uh, you know, I'm, um, there's going to be a struggle. There's going to be a, a conflict. Um, one of us will, will be okay or happy, and one of us won't. It, it is it is my thought, uh, uh, I don't know, belief or whatever, um, that I, I think over time, even though I may disagree with it, I, I think um, Patrick ultimately is going to get his wish. Uh, hope that didn't happen, but I, I, being a realist, I think that. Uh, will happen whether it's against my wishes or not. I, I, that's just what I believe. You know, perhaps in the future, maybe in 20 years, 25 years, it's just no big deal that there's there's no, you know, it's it's, it's not like a forefront issue. You know, I, I don't know. That's that, that's what I'm working for. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen said that if the Republican Party ever became pro-choice, he definitely have to leave. On gay issues, we'll wait and see how he feels. Like he says, what's probably going to happen is either Patrick's going to be unhappy with the party's position and struggling from within to change it, or Stephen will. Well, our program was produced today by Alex Bloomberg and myself with Diane Cook, Wendy Dorje, and Felta, Sarah Kanigan, Lisa Pollack. Our senior producer is Julie Snyder. Elizabeth Meister runs our website. Production help from Todd Bachman and Amy O'Leary. Special thanks today to Jenny Lawton, Melinda Whitstock, Heather Dahl, Bess Rattray, Jacob Drill, Patrick Cotter, Keith Nichols, Rick Lacey, Charlotte at the Alabama GOP, Ann Stone, Jay McEllicott. Josh Bierman and Mara Strasberg at the Gallup Polls. You know, you can download audio of our show at audible.com slash This American Life, where they have public radio programs, best-selling books, even the New York Times, all at audible.com. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. This American Life is proudly sponsored by Volkswagen of America, who cares so much about creating a perfect driving experience that now they're even funding what comes out of the car radio, namely our program. More information on the four-wheeled, gas-powered radio listening rooms at VW.com, WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia, who swears whenever we try to put him on the show. Are you, are you, are you Lutheran liberal friends? No. Trying to corner me no. just like Megalore? Trying to ambush me? I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life. PRI, Public Radio International.